This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujiadeen. Today is Wednesday, October 12th. Coming up, Missouri's state commission designated to advocate for Latino populations quietly disappeared 14 years ago. But some say there's a strong need for it to come back. Too bad that the commissioning is no longer together. That's really sad, actually, because they need a voice. Plus, how communities in the Mississippi River Basin, including in Missouri, are dealing with a rise in flooding caused by global warming. But first, some headlines. A woman allegedly kidnapped and held hostage for a month in Excelsior Springs says her assailant picked her up on Prospect Avenue. That man, Mark Hazlitt Jr., appeared in court for the first time yesterday. KCUR's Frank Morris reports. Hazlitt is charged with rape, kidnapping, and assault. His alleged victim says she was locked and bound in a basement room, whipped and raped repeatedly after being picked up in Kansas City in early September. She told police she escaped Friday morning when Hazlitt left to take a child to school. She also said there were two other victims. When police searched Hazlitt's small house in Excelsior Springs, they found numerous firearms. They've since removed bags of evidence from the premises and boarded up the house. Hazlitt's 39. A Clay County judge entered a not guilty plea on Hazlitt's behalf. He'll be assigned a public defender. COVID-19 case numbers are still slowly decreasing in the Kansas City metro, but local hospitals are preparing for increased strain as the weather gets colder. KCUR's Noah Taborda has more. The Mid-America Regional Council recorded an average of 152 new cases per day during the week ending October 1st, the most recent period when data was available. That's down from 171 the week prior. Despite the drop in numbers, Dana Hawkinson at the University of Kansas Health System says they are bracing for a serious wave of respiratory infections in the fall and winter. Hopefully, with all the individual uh, immunity based on uh, vaccination and reinfection with SARS-CoV-2, we can keep hospitalization rates down. Hawkinson says it's critical that healthcare workers are fully vaccinated because many hospitals still struggle with staffing. Teacher retention rates in Kansas are the lowest they've been in more than a decade. Data presented to the Kansas Board of Education shows only 86% of teachers made it to their third year of teaching in 2022. That's down from more than 92% the previous year. Jim Porter is chairman of the board. He says widespread criticism of school lessons and teachers have prompted many to leave. There are people that I consider to be excellent classroom teachers that just quit because they no longer were allowing themselves to be disrespected. Kansas Education Commissioner Randy Watson said schools need to expand mentoring programs for teachers. As the climate continues to change and extreme weather events become more common, communities across the Mississippi River Basin are facing an increased risk of flooding. The area includes much of the Midwest, Great Plains, and the South. Eva Tesfai of Harvest Public Media reported on one community in Missouri and how it's adapting to the changes. She sat down with me to tell me how flooding is changing small towns. So what is the Mississippi River Basin? Yeah, so a river basin is like basically a river and all the tributaries and all the land where water drains into the river. So the Mississippi River Basin is all those rivers and tributaries that go into the Mississippi River. So it occupies like a huge part of the U.S. And, you know, the rivers that we have here in Missouri and Kansas are the Missouri and Kansas River. And those, you know, come together and go into the Mississippi River Basin. So we're a part of that. 
that. 32 states are a part of it, and actually two provinces in Canada are also in the basin. So why is more rainfall happening now? Yeah, so that's largely due to climate change. What we're seeing from rainfall is that it's not only like happening a lot, but it's getting more intense. So when it like when it rains, it pours. It's just getting really heavy rain, and that's why we're seeing a lot of flooding. And that's largely because of greenhouse gases warming the atmosphere and warming oceans in particular. And for us, a lot of the moisture comes from the Gulf of Mexico. And so oceans produce a lot of water vapor. And then because we have all these greenhouse gases, the atmosphere is holding a lot of that moisture. And also here in the Midwest, we see a lot of evapotranspiration So that's just water vapor coming from plants, coming from our corn, um, which is also why the Midwest has a lot of moisture in the atmosphere and why it's super muggy here. Okay, I'm sorry. Surprise question. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So is Missouri kind of on that dividing line of eastern U.S. getting flooding and then western U.S. getting a drought? Is it because we're in the middle of the country that you know, we're seeing the split? I don't think the split is like something that's going to be the same or like very clear from like year to year. Since we're talking about the climate, which is over a longer period of time, it's hard to say like this is the climate now. But I think, yeah, it, it really goes with what we expect to see, which is that like the drought and the dryness happening on one side of the country and wetness and moisture happening on the other. So how are older flood systems handling the rise in rainfall? Yeah, so they're not. Um, Back in the 1800s, the Army Corps of Engineers, who are in charge of the rivers um, in the Mississippi River Basin, they built channels and levees, and those couldn't even really survive a flood that came shortly after, which was in 1927. Um, And then we saw bigger floods after that, and they just keep on destroying the levees. One example of that is in Atchison County, Missouri. The Missouri River flooded in 2019, and this was the third flood that happened in the past 30 years. And those levees were built in the 40s and 50s and just couldn't withstand these huge floods. And the flood put, you know, over 50,000 acres underwater, and it destroyed a lot of homes and farmland. So... At the time, the community decided that something needed to change. So how are communities adapting to these changes in climate? Yeah, so one thing that um, some communities are considering is kind of moving those levees and giving the river room to flood. That's what they did in Atchison County. Um, They moved one of the levees that breached in 2019 with the help of the Army Corps and a bunch of other organizations. And now they're, they're trying to move another. And the Army Corps is also working with Missouri, Nebraska, and Kansas, and Iowa to see where it can do maybe more levy setbacks or other large-scale changes that will build flood resiliency. There's also federal funding for this um, under FEMA's Building Resilient Infrastructure Program, which started in 2020. But a research report found that a lot of that funding is going to coastal communities and not as much as going to rural inland ones like the ones that we have here. An example with Atchison, they actually wanted to do the setback on another levy in the first place, but the Corps wouldn't let them because it had already spent money repairing that levy. Um, So doing another change would have been a lot more money, but they're still trying to make that happen. Another issue that could possibly happen is, you know, farmers might not want to give up their land that's close to the river. And they definitely had to contend with that in Atchison, but they ended up being able to convince them that, you know, this land is just going to keep flooding. It's not going to be good agricultural land. 
might as well sell it now while it's still worth something. So, um, but that is definitely a challenge for a, a lot of places um, where you have a lot of farmland um, next to the rivers. Can you sort of spell out like what happens when a community is flooded? Like what do people lose? Yeah, well, when we're seeing repeated floods like this, I think a lot of people are contending with the question of whether they should stay or leave. I spoke to a couple who had been there for their whole lives and I actually spoke to them in a bowling alley because all the small businesses had closed down. There weren't a lot of restaurants. So the where people met is is the bowling alley. So I think it is seeing this repeated flooding, like people are realizing that, you know, the places that they live their whole lives are maybe not viable to live on anymore. And that's that's really hard. That was reporter Eva Tesfai of Harvest Public Media and KCUR. You can read Eva's story as well as the rest of Harvest Public Media series on the Mississippi River Basin at kcur.org. Hispanic Missourians used to have advocates built into the state government, thanks to the bipartisan Governor's Commission on Hispanic Affairs introduced in 2003. About four years later, it basically disappeared. Cassidy Arena brings us the story on what happened to it and why its disappearance matters. It's been 14 years since the state has had a functional governor-appointed commission assigned to address issues facing Hispanic and Latino Missourians. Also since then, that population has seen a more than 40% growth. At the Business After Hours social hosted by the St. Louis Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, attendees say events like these that support Hispanic communities are integral to their professional and personal growth. Attendees like Gabriela Ramirez Arellano, who says there's a need for more state efforts like these. We're barely like scratching the surface on the needs. Ramirez Arellano is an entrepreneur who served on Governor Mike Parson's Show Me Strong Recovery Task Force last year. It was created by executive order to alleviate some disproportionate pandemic pressures on underrepresented business owners. And so for me, it was important to be at that table to advocate for like the struggles that we have. That executive order mentioned something called the Hispanic Business Trade and Culture Commission. That was active under former Governor Matt Blunt. It was earlier known as the Governor's Commission on Hispanic Affairs under Blunt's predecessor, Bob Holden. Either way, the commission doesn't meet anymore. Oh my goodness, they don't? That's Beatriz Kamet-Chin. She had served as a commissioner based in Colombia and has since moved out of state. She hadn't heard about its disappearance. Too bad that the commissioning is no longer together. That's really sad, actually, because they need a voice. The last time documents show the commission met was 2008. It was technically still in existence, but activity stopped sometime during the transition to the Jay Nixon administration. Some commissioners were assigned in 2008, but there were no meetings set or directives from the governor's office about what commission responsibilities would be. Six years later, in 2014, Nixon lessened it to a committee. That expired within the year. Commission co-creator Carlos Orta says there's less government influence associated with the committee. So if you don't have a voice, the government doesn't know about this population, they're going to be left out of opportunities. Not because people don't care, they just don't know. Orta and the rest of the commission prepared annual reports throughout the years they were active, which they then presented to legislators. Their goal was to act as a direct link to lawmakers and show how Latinos were contributing to the state, and also what they still needed. 
In their preliminary research, the creators of Missouri's former commission found states surrounding Missouri have pretty successful Hispanic commissions. Nebraska, Kansas, Illinois, and Iowa. Iowa's Commission of Latino Affairs, among other things, helped establish a statewide helpline for Spanish speakers called La Línea de Ayuda. Caleb Knudsen had been its chair for more than two years. He says the fact that Iowa's Latinos have a commission gives them teeth. You know, if we were just some committee that got put together, some nonprofit, that's us on our own legs. But when people hear that we are governor appointed and we get an official letter and an email with the stamp and seal, that matters. People care about that. Back here in Missouri, former commissioners say they are willing to help whoever steps up to start a commission again. And St. Louis resident Gabriela Ramirez Arellano is trying. To be able to be at the table and provide and share some of those experiences as challenges or as best practices, it helps the state actually acknowledge and realize that there are other people besides English speakers that they need to help. As of now, there hasn't been any major development to reestablish a state commission designated for Missouri's Hispanic and Latino communities. I'm Cassidy Arena. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia-Dean. This podcast is produced by Byron Love and KCUR Studios and edited by Lisa Rodriguez and Gabe Rosenberg. To read Cassidy's story on the Commission on Hispanic Affairs, visit kcur.org, where you can find more Missouri and Kansas news from Kansas City's NPR station. Tomorrow, we'll hear why some advocates for academic freedom are concerned over open records requests filed by Missouri's Attorney General. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you soon. This podcast isn't the only way KCUR keeps you informed, entertained, and inspired. Check out our daily news email, The Early Bird, our weekly creative adventure email, and so much more. You can subscribe at kcur.org newsletters.